We're going through the Gospel of, of Matthew right now, and of course that's where we are this morning. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. You know, we started this series, church, back at the end of 2021, I think it was, um, in the, or 2022. And we, we, we gave this uh, series a specific title, and it's, it's, we called it King and Kingdom. And it's a reminder that when Matthew put together this gospel, this biography, some 2,000 years ago, he did it with a specific purpose. This is not just a haphazard um, look at various uh, sundry facts about Jesus' life, but, but Matthew is wanting to communicate uh, a purpose to us behind what he's sharing about Jesus' life. And, and here it is, simply put, he wants to communicate to you and to me unequivocally that Jesus is king, that, that he is not simply a prophet or a moral philosopher or a sage or a good teacher, although he's all those things, and he's not simply a king, but in fact, he is the king, the long-awaited, um, prophesied from the Old Testament Messiah, and he has come to save his people from their sins. You know, we in our culture can get away with saying things like, we believe in a king or a, or a ruler or a, an authority or um, a person or a specific way. But when we start talking about, we are affirming that this is the way, this is the person, this is the king, then of course, this is going to challenge our cultural moment. And what we've seen in Matthew's gospel, and here in Matthew chapter 8 particularly, is that Jesus, while he was teaching with authority in Matthew 5 through 7, now he is acting with authority. He is doing amazing things, supernatural things. He is healing diseases. He is calming storms. He is speaking a word and making things happen. The, the blind are seeing and the lame are walking, and Matthew really wants us to understand, Jesus, he's not recording these things just because he wants to show that Jesus is putting on a religious spectacle. This is not entertainment. This is not just another seeker-friendly way to gather a crowd. In fact, what Jesus is doing is he is showing us his bona fides. He, he's laying out his credentials because each of us have to come to Matthew's gospel and understand we can't remain neutral. We, we can't come to, to see Jesus and Matthew and say, well, I think Pastor Paul, he's a, he's a good guy. He's an inspirational guy. He teaches some good things. There's some nuggets for me and my family along the course of my, my life. But, you know, I don't want to be too religious, too zealous, I mean, I mean let, let, let's, let's, I'm a respectable person, by the way. I'm not a Jesus freak. I, let, let, let's put things into perspective. But, but Matthew wants us to know that option is not open to us. When we come to his gospel, we either say, I absolutely reject who Jesus is here. I don't believe it. It's not compelling. I'm not going to build my life on it. Or if it's true what he says, then this is the place that's going to capture my heart. I am going to follow this man, this God-man, and entrust my very life to him. There's no, there's no in-between. And all of these things that we're reading about him in Matthew 8 that Jesus is doing is to show us he, in fact, is who he says 
he is. Now, we've seen how Jesus has been Lord over sickness. We've seen how he's been Lord over leprosy. He's been Lord over the weather. And we could speak a little bit of that right now into Tallahassee, right? That, that would be helpful. And as we're going to see this morning, though, he's also Lord over the supernatural. He's Lord over the spiritual world. He's Lord over demons. Now, let's be honest here. As we look at this passage where Jesus meets these two demoniacs and he casts the demons out of these two crazy men, let's be honest that there's a lot of cultural barriers that we're going to have to overcome when we if we are to take a passage like this seriously. See, we we live in a materialistic culture, a secular culture, which wants to tell us that the only things that are real are those things that we can see, taste, touch, put our hands upon. Any of that other sort of stuff, anything that we cannot prove by the rules of science, in a lot of ways, is seen by us as being less than real. In fact, we can become if not functional atheists, kind of like functional deists, right? Like God's up there, we're down here, we're doing our thing, we're living our life. God, he's, he's interested in these aspects of our spiritual lives, but really the, 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 the whoop and wharf of my life, he's not so vested in. But what Matthew wants to show us is that that's a deception, that all of life is spiritual, That Jesus is king over everything. And that no part of our life is lived out on neutral ground. All of our life, whether it's the job we go to, the kids we parent, the ministry we have, the groups we lead, the places we go, all of them are played out, for lack of better terms, on a spiritual playing field, a spiritual battleground. And we have to know as Christians, as those who profess Christ, that there is a very active and very present enemy who is opposing us every step of the way. Sometimes it's in your face. Sometimes it's much more subtle. But, but we're going to, to see this morning, number one, and this, this is the bad news, you and I are not up to this task. We're, we're not. We are, we are dealing with forces and powers that are far beyond our human capacity. That's the bad news. But the good news is that we follow and trust in one who is greater, who is powerful, who has authority, who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, even over the spiritual realm. So we're going to be in Matthew 8 this morning. We're going to be reading verses 28 through 34, and if you're able to, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Matthew 8, 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. 
So they came out and went into the, into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, as the people who are in that town, standing on that shore, we are in the same place they are. Will we receive you? And so, Father, help us to get past any cultural, um, materialistic sort of barriers that, that make this scene from 2,000 years ago seem distant or abstract or superstitious or out of touch. And Lord, show us two things, how very, very real is the spiritual war that we are in, but how very, very real is our Savior and King Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. I thought about entitling this passage, Master of Puppets. Um, if you know, you know. But because that would endure forever and ever on the interwebs um, as a sermon title, well, I guess it's going to endure now. You, you get the idea, right? I opted for the much more spiritual, and I think this is entirely more accurate, the all-encompassing authority of Christ. That's what Matthew wants to, to press in on us. And we're going to look at two, two aspects to this passage. One, the authority of Christ over the spiritual, and then secondly, the authority of Christ over the material, all right? So that's, those are our two points. That's where we're going. Let's dig in verse 28, the authority of Christ over the spiritual. It tells us that Jesus is on his way, he and his entourage, his disciples, his traveling group, from Capernaum over to the eastern shore of Galilee. Now, if you're a Jew reading this, you immediately um, understand what's happening here. When, when, they, when they hear that the disciples are heading over and Jesus is heading over to Gadarenes, that's, that's the area of the dreaded Gentiles. That's the Decapolis area. That's the ten cities of, of those pagans, right? This is, this is the Seminole traveling from God's country here in Tallahassee and venturing down into that place that must not be named, right? The sewer and, well, I'm sorry, the swamp. You get, you get what I'm saying, right? Now, if you did not know that this was Gentile territory geographically, you absolutely know it is by looking at their domestic practices. Because what are these bunch of crazy Gentile pagan farmers raising? They're raising pigs, right? Now, Mark tells us there are actually 2,000 of these pigs. It's kind of like a, an episode of Clarkson's farm. And as, and as I told first service, this was not a kosher situation for the disciples. Get that? Okay. You get it now, right? I got it. So they're in enemy territory. They're, they, they've gone off from their homeland. They're, they're the visiting team. And they land on the beach, and it says there are two demon-possessed men. Now, the word there is daimonizomai. It means to be Literally, to be possessed or to be vexed. Don't you love that term? I'm vexed. 
Um, parents tell your kids you're vexed by their behavior, but they're vexed by these demons. These demons have taken over on some level, some level of, of control, of influence, of dominating their these two people's personalities. And the word that Matthew uses here is that they were fierce, literally perilous. They were dangerous. And when we read in Mark chapter 5 a more detailed description of what they were facing, you can understand why. Listen to what Mark chapter 5 says. And no one could bind him anymore. Here he's just talking about one of the men. Not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. And he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Sounds like some of your next door neighbors, I understand, right? No, no, no. This is, this is I mean, this was no mere domestic disturbance. This was something that had taken over. This was something prominent. This was something like, stay away, Right? This whole area of the country is sort of cordoned off. It is way too dangerous. There, there is wickedness. There is evil. You might get hurt if you go near there. And I love the way that Matthew just sort of drops in here. And he says, where were these, where were these guys living? In the cemetery. You got to love it, right? I mean, this is slasher flick stuff. This is, you know, the haunted mansion. This is, this is all of that. This is the neighbor's house that no one go, wants to go near because it's haunted or what have you except this was real. Oh, it was, it was very real. And it tells us, look back at the text, that the demons met the party on the beach. Now, this was not a welcoming committee. They were not having cocktails. This was, this was not a sit-down. The word met, it really means they aggressively presented themselves. It's one of these halt, who goes there sorts of moments, And it's Matthew's very subtle way of showing that what we have here is nothing less than a spiritual showdown. This is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. This is spiritual evil against spiritual good. This is a conflict between two competing spiritual authorities. And these men, these demons are here to do business. But, let's keep going through the text here, what they discover is they had bitten a little bit more off than they could chew, right? This was, you know, this is the equivalent of, of, of telling someone that you're going to meet them after school because you want to have a fight. In theory, this happened in your childhood, right? And they show up with the whole gang right? They show up with the bully on the block. They show, they show up with the toughest guy. And this is exactly what happens. Look at verse 29. They cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? In other words, they came out to do their usual trick and they realized before it was too late, this was a little more than they had bargained for. This was, this was not what they had come there to do. Literally, they recognized Jesus for who he was. They used that term, son of of God. It's also, it's a reminder, by the way, demons are some of the best theologians. Do you know that? In, in the book of James, it says, even the demons believe that there is one God and they shudder. 
Theological knowledge, by the way, doesn't save you. What saves you is an active and living trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Tons of people who are lost who know tons of theological knowledge. And here, these demons, they recognize Jesus for who he is, and they ask him, have you come here to torment us before it's time? Now, that's an interesting statement. There's so much theology that's tied up into that question. It's going to require just, just a minute or two excursion, if you let me, just to understand how, how we are to think about demons and the spiritual realities from a biblical perspective. So when you read Revelation 12, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, go read those on your own time, what we come to understand is that demons are nothing less than fallen angels. That before the foundation of the world, when God created the heavens, he also created angelic beings. And these beings were messengers. They were there to, to serve the Lord, to glorify him, to worship him. And we know that the chief angel at the time was a beautiful angel named Lucifer. And Lucifer was second in command. There was none that were higher than him except for the Lord God himself. And it says that because of his pride, because of his folly, because of his, 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 his desire to be God, his desire to supplant God, his desire to have the glory of God, that Satan led a rebellion in heaven. And that he took with him in this rebellion one-third of the angels. And that as a result of this, God cast them down. He threw them out of heaven. And these fallen angels, of course, we now know are demons. And for a measure of time, until Jesus returns one day and enacts the final judgment, Satan and his minions have been given a a mission, or they've taken a mission. They, they, they've been given a reprieve, which they use for the express purpose of harassing and deceiving the people of God, of thwarting his plans, of thwarting his purpose, of leading and deceiving and drawing others astray. And so we see angels or demons in the scriptures have all sorts of power, all sorts of ability, much, much more than would a normal human being like us. So, for, for example, we see that, that demons harass. We see that demons lead into temptation. We see demons causing disease, demons causing death. Think about this for a second. It was Satan, with permission from God, who unleashed all sorts of havoc on Job's life. Remember this? took away his children, took away his possessions, took away his livestock. Even Paul, remember, he says, I was wrestling with this thorn in the flesh. And what does he call this thorn in the flesh? A messenger of Satan. And so there, demons, the supernatural evil, Satan and his minions have been given a wide berth in this life until Jesus returns to wage war against the saints. 
And we never need to forget that. That as Peter reminds us that Satan is a roaring lion, prowling, seeking to conquer and devour. The nature of, a, of an attack from a lion is that you don't see it coming. The lion prowls, he crouches, he hides, and then he tacks ferociously. Now, saying all of that, because demons are great theologians, right? They know their scriptures, they know their theology. There's one thing that every demon unequivocally knows, and it's simply this, their time is limited. That while they've been given sway for a time and a season, and that there might be many battles that they win, they are hopeless when it comes to winning the ultimate spiritual war. While they've been given temporary status, you just simply have to read Revelations. No, there's going to be a day when, when Jesus returns and abolishes evil for all time. He will cast Satan and his minions into the lake of, fri- lake of fire, where Jesus will reign as king, unhindered, unrivaled for all eternity. And the reason that this is going to happen, it's, it's one reason and one reason only, is simply this, it's because of the cross. See, Jesus died to eradicate sin and death. This is why Satan, and we looked at this in Matthew chapter 4, remember, why Satan and his minions put so much attention, so much effort in trying to divert Jesus from his mission. What did Satan, how did Satan tempt Jesus in the wilderness? He said, Jesus, eat the bread. Establish your kingdom. You don't have to die. You don't have to go to this mission to the cross. That's entirely unnecessary. But in order for Jesus to defeat the works of Satan, he had to go to the cross. And because of this, everyone, all the spiritual world, knows their time is limited. So, back to the text. When Jesus so shows up, the, the demons are saying equivalently, what are you doing here? You're too early. I, I remember when my, my, my mom would drop me off at a friend's house growing up. And she would say, I'm going to be back at 7 o'clock, right? I'll pick you up and we'll go home and eat dinner. And I remember just thinking, oh, this is great. We have, we have all, all, we have after school, we have several hours, we can play basketball, we can build Legos, we can do all those things. And then mom comes one day and shows up at 4.30, right? You're like, oh, I, I, I'm sorry, I forgot. You have, and it's always this, you have a dentist appointment. It's always something like that, right? And my attitude or my, my, and my, my response is, but mom, you said we had till seven. You, you, you said I could do this, this, and this, and this, and that you were going to come back. And, but, but you're early. What are you doing here? That's what the demons are saying. Jesus, it's not time yet. Jesus, we still have sway here. What are you doing showing up and swilling our party and here's just a little tidbit just for for just to kind of park in your mind this is Jesus's way of reminding them your time is short that 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 you're that you're wreaking havoc here you're raising Cain but I've come here to do just in my estimation a small miracle to remind you, to remind everyone else that this is a foretaste of the kingdom. 
Four Oaks, there is going to be a day, I mean, can, can you can just picture this for a second, where you are no longer led into temptation, where you no longer have to wrestle with sin, you no longer have to deal with the effects of sin in this life. And it's not just the sins we commit, it's the sins that are committed against us. It's the evil that's perpetrated in the world. It's, it's the brokenness that surrounds us. And our hearts cry to God in this, Lord, come quickly, come back, save us, restore us, give us shalom, give us peace. And Jesus, by this miracle, is just giving us a taste of his kingdom. He's just reminding the demonic world who's the boss. So, look back at the text. The demons make a couple of bizarre requests. They, 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 they know they've met their match, and they say, don't, don't cast us out. In other words, don't send us back to the abyss. Okay? Let us go over here. Send us to this, to this group of pigs. Okay? Now, let me say a couple of things about this that we can deduce from this. Matthew 12, when we get to that passage here in, in a month or two, seems to make it clear that demons are not just ethereal spirits drifting around wherever, that they actually have to have a place to go. That, that, they, that they are just like we as Christians are on a mission, they're on a mission as well. And they are looking for people to possess, we'll come back to this in a second, people to oppress, people to lead astray. There's no such thing as a demon that's orbiting around that doesn't have a specific mission. And so what they're saying is, Jesus, don't cast us out and send us back to the abyss, okay? Give us a place to go. Let's go with the pigs, so what does Jesus do? Look back at the text for a second. And I think Matthew truncates this. He says it so succinctly and tightly, it's, it's meant to communicate something powerful to us. He simply says one word, verse 32, and he said to them what? Go. Depart. It's kind of like when Jesus tells Lazarus what? Rise. Come out. When, when God at the dawn of creation says, let there be. There is this sense that Jesus is speaking existence into reality with just a word. Just a word. Just one. Doesn't take a phrase, doesn't take an incantation, doesn't take hand motions. There's not a rhyme that goes along with it. This is Matthew's way of showing us that Jesus has absolute power and authority over everything, including the spiritual realm. And it says that the demons leave immediately, instantaneously, on a command. Because one of the things I just would want to encourage you towards, as you think about the, the, the powers of Satan and demons in this life, which are real, 
that we remember Luther's famous verse from Mighty Fortresses Our God. Here's what Luther says. And though this world with devils fill should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. And here's my favorite phrase of the whole song, and I find it so encouraging. One little word shall fail him. Guys, where do you need to be reminded in your life that Jesus is Lord over it all? Now, what's up with this being cast into these pigs and the pigs running off the cliff. And in case PETA sets up um, um, protests outside, let me just explain a couple of things, right? Clearly, um, there's something powerful and symbolic, right? Because after all, Jesus could have simply cast the demons out and sent them back to the abyss. We're left to assume here, but because he sends them into the pigs and the pigs die, that abyss is where they end up anyway. So why the pigs? If you want to discuss that in further detail, we can go to Four Rivers and we can talk about that over brisket sandwiches. Okay, come on, I just had to just, come on. Okay, in all seriousness, why? Why, why this spectacle? Why the whole act of running into the pigs, and the pigs jumping off? In all seriousness, what, what, what is that about? I think John MacArthur has something really important to say. This is what he says. What he did was give a living demonstration of the deliverance of those two men that no one would ever forget. We're still talking about it today. At the same time, it did demonstrate the destructive nature of demons. For when demons hit those pigs, instantly they were all destroyed. And I believe it gave to the demons a preview of their own coming destruction. I believe that he wanted a living proof that those demons came out of those men. He sent them into those animals that those animals might put on a demonstration that nobody would ever forget. This was not theory, right? Jesus is Lord over it. Two things, two application points, and then we'll go to the last point. First, and I've said, I've said this 10 times already in the sermon, let me repeat it again. Demons are real. They are powerful. They are at work. And can I say this? This is a great warning to us in our age. They are not to be trifled with. See, one of the things that, that happens in a culture that becomes demystified, where we're all about science and objective facts and and, and, and factoring out God and those sorts of things, it creates a void. And so on one hand, we're materialists as a culture, but isn't it interesting how drawn we are to the dark arts, to, to, to magic, to fantasy, to the paranormal, to psychic sorts of things? It's, it's, there's this void because we, we, we know, don't we? That there's, that there's something else out there. But remember, this is not to be trifled with. There was a season in the life of the evangelical church, maybe 20, 30 years ago, where there was a big push about demonic influence, right? Praying the right prayers, casting out the demons, naming the demons by name. Because let me just say, if a real demon showed up 
you would not want a part of it. They are supernatural, powerful beings. I have, now, I believe I have witnessed what I would consider to be demonic possessions. Uh, there was one time I was working in a mental health setting and, and won't go into all of it now. Missionaries report this. When they go into, into more primitive kinds of culture, they, re, they report these sort of sightings. You may say, well, well Pastor Paul, wh why does that not happen here? Why does this not happen in the same way in our modern culture? Now, and MacArthur says this is, this is really interesting. He says, Satan adapts himself to the level of sophistication of any particular culture. See, Satan is much more sly and deceptive for us. See, you may not be contending with crazy demoniacs running around naked outside of your house in your neighborhood and breaking chains. Satan doesn't need that. Satan's attacks are much more subtle, much more attractive. Why a demoniac when pornography will do? Why, why come at you full force when he has your iPhone to endlessly distract you? What, what's the use of demonic possession? You know your enemy then. But materialism, pride, power, achievement, these are all things that we subtly domesticate without realizing that these are Satan's full frontal attacks against us. Because I, I, don't, I don't believe Christians can be possessed, let me just say that. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. I don't think a demon can exist inside a Christian who has the Holy Spirit. But let me say this, Christians can be attacked. Christians can be harassed. Christians can be tempted. I believe Christians can even be oppressed. When my, my first year in seminary and I moved away from home and I went through a severe, really severe depression. And you could say there was a lot of things tied up into that, right? I was away from home. I didn't know anybody. I was alone. I was wrestling through big decisions in my life. But I remember there were just certain nights, certain seasons of that year when I just felt a real oppression, a real darkness, a real hopelessness, a real despair. And by the way, those are not fruits of the Spirit. Those are not fruits of the Spirit. And as I reflect back on that season and realizing, you know, I was making a lot of decisions. Who am I going to marry? Who, what, what kind of ministry is God calling me to? And this was Satan's opportunity to derail that. So, so Christian, do not be deceived. The spiritual battle is real. But number two, second application point. While Satan is powerful, in the words of my friend Dave Harvey, he's always on a leash. It's interesting if you go into the, to the airport and you see the security guards with the guns and they oftentimes have their, their little crime dog, not their little crime dog, but you know, the German shepherd looking crime dogs, okay? And it's awesome because on one hand, you know that if they unleashed that dog on you, you are toast, right? They are vicious, they are, not to, they are to be feared, they are to be respected. But if you didn't know what the dog was trained to do, you would just think, what a cute dog. And I've seen the airport workers let children come over and rub the dog's tummy and give it little treats. And you, do, you would just think, man, this is, this is a pretty domesticated dog. 
Guys, do you realize that's God's exact relationship with Satan? Sometimes, sometimes, see, there, there's a way that we can take the forces of, of, of evil and spiritual realities not seriously enough. And there's other times that we can take them way too seriously in that sometimes we think there's, there's, there's God and there's the devil and each is on one shoulder and each of them are competing as to get us to do something. Or who's going to be victorious? But scripture tells us over and over that is not the reality. Satan is dangerous. He is a roaring lion, but he is defanged. He is on a leash. That's why he has to come to God and say, I'd like to have a turn at your servant, Job. And God says, you can do this, this, and this. But Satan, you cannot do that, that, and that. He says, Peter, Satan has requested to sift you as wheat. But what does Jesus say? But I prayed for you. So we need to get our sense of proportion right. That Jesus is the king and that while Satan is capable of much damage, much deception, that ultimately... His time is very limited. Okay, last thing, and then we're going, to be, we're going to be done. Second point. This is going to be quick. Not only does Jesus have authority over the spiritual realm, he has authority over the material realm. Look, look back at verse 34 for a second. Jesus has just rid the gatherings of the neighborhood bully, right? He's just sent them packing. He sent them to the curb. And we would fully expect, would we not, a hero's welcome, the triumphal entry. But look at verse 34. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they what? Begged him to leave their reason. Begged him to leave. What are we to make of that? I think there's a couple things going on here. One, it was very easy for the people to say, this is, this is this spiritual reality over here. And while we steer clear and we cordon off this part of the neighborhood, it doesn't really impact the rest of our life. It doesn't impact our jobs. It doesn't impact our herds. It doesn't impact the way we live our lives. It doesn't impact the bottom line. But when Jesus begins to put his finger on the root problem, on the spiritual problem, and it reveals itself and shows itself up in these material realities, the loss of income. Remember, pigs were their livelihood. Pigs represented their money. Pigs represented their security. Cattle, livestock represented all that was consistent and stable in their life. But when Jesus began to mess with the material things in their life, they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Don't want that. Too much. Gone too far. Jesus, I'm great to have you if you deal with this thing in my life or if you take care of this problem or this struggle. But, and we don't say this as Christians, but we think it, but don't dare mess with this. Don't, don't, don't go there. What we need to see here is that what the, what the people <clears throat> are responding to is the unsettledness of following Jesus. 
Because we need to understand fully and completely that when we entrust our lives to King Jesus, that is a disruptive decision. That makes a claim on every area of our life, on our pocketbooks, on our livelihoods, on our parenting, on our travel, our leisure, our relationships, our marriage. It makes a claim on everything. And sometimes we want to say, Jesus, please kind of deal with this thing over here in my life. But when Jesus says, I'm not going to have any of that, I'm not a bifurcated king. I'm not duly minded here. When I come in to work in your heart, there's going to be no area that remains untouched. I, I, I want to sanctify and change you in every area of your life. I want all of you. It may sound like a strange question, but let me just pose it to you as we wind down here. What's that thing for you? What is your equivalent herd of pigs? The thing that you and I maybe have set off limits to the authority of Christ. Those things that we've said, Jesus, you can have these things, but these things, ugh. There's a cost. There's, there's a claim. And this is, I think, what the townspeople were up against. This was a claim they could not endure. This Messiah, this Savior, he was great if he was domesticated. It was great if he just took care of the things that they perceived were their problems. But when Jesus began messing with the fabric of their lives, they walked away sad. Just like the rich, young ruler. So what is that thing in your life? Where are those neutral places that you need to be reminded that that belongs to Jesus too? That, that, that every area of your life is spiritual, that there is, there is no neutral space, and that Jesus makes claim to all of it because he loves you because he's died for you, because he wants to, to change you from the inside out. So what happens next here? What's, what's, how are we to tie this up, so to speak, when it comes to Satan? It's a, there's a good reminder from, from 1 John 3. By the way, John witnessed this event. And here's what John says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How did Jesus destroy the works of the devil? You know, if you're a, um, a Jew living in 60 AD and you're reading Matthew's gospel account for the first time, this whole story would have given you the hibby-jibbies, right? First of all, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to an unclean territory. And he's dealing with unclean people. And he's casting them out into unclean animals. The whole thing just reeks of defilement, right? And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There was nothing worse almost for a Jew to be defiled than to be defiled. Because when you were defiled, when you touched a dead body, when you touched something unclean, you were outside the camp. You had no communion with God's people. You could not come to the temple. You could not come to the tabernacle. You could not come to the altar. So how did Jesus 
defeat the works of Satan, he got out of the boat and walked right onto that beach. And he became unclean. See, this is what the gospel is. Jesus took on our ritual defilement. Jesus became unclean for us. He took on our sins. He took on our uncleanliness. You see, we would love to say, oh yeah, we're just the disciples in the boat watching all of this happen. When in reality, who are we in this story? We're the demon-possessed men. We're the ones who've been oppressed by sin, who have lived lives full of darkness, with no hope of saving ourselves, no hope of making ourselves ritually clean or undefiled. But Paul says what Jesus did at that time was that the clean became unclean. Righteousness became sin. Jesus got out of that boat, went right into the middle of the defilement, brought his healing as only he can heal to give us a foretaste, to give us a picture that this is what he does in the gospel. That he comes, the clean for the unclean, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you feel like this is a season in where you are dealing with great spiritual struggle, great spiritual warfare, that, that, that you're, you're really maybe in tune to that in a way you haven't been at other times of your life. What you need to see is that Jesus is in the midst of that, that he has come, that he has died, that he's laid his life down, that he's taking on your uncleanliness. And that he is, for those who are trusting in him, given a new heart to be made clean. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads for a moment. And as you're reflecting on this message and this passage, that you would ask God to prepare your hearts as we get ready to come to take the Lord's Supper. And as you're doing that, I'm going to invite our leaders to come and serve our elements.